0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. I'm your host, Bill Widener, and today is November 4th, 2021, two days after election day. And I have to say that while planning this episode a few weeks back, we did not realize that we would have something more to talk about than we thought, which is that voters in St. Paul, Minnesota, approve one of the nation's most aggressive rent stabilization measures, which caps rent increases at 3%, regardless of inflation or the age of the building. What else are we discussing today? Stay tuned for everything from the constitutional challenge to rent control in New York, and so much more. In the studio with me is Nateeb Winiarski. Named partner at Cooker, Marino, Winarski, and Bittens. Native has been a past guest on Realty Speaks, episode twenty-seven, consequences of overregulation of property rights, and episode thirty-four, the pandemic eviction moratorium. Today, Nativ is my co-host and helping me do a deep dive from an attorney's perspective into our topics with guests. Craig Gambardella, real estate management attorney and partner at Nativ's firm, and Jim Burling joining us on the phone from California, and he is an attorney and the VP of legal affairs at the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is a nonprofit legal organization that defends Americans' liberties when threatened by government overreach and abuse. Jim will share some landmark wins in California that can certainly help with the existing challenges to that government overreach with regard to your property rights, As owners of investment real estate. Gentlemen, thanks for being here today for me and the Realty Speak audience.
1: Wonderful to be here, Bill. Really looking forward to this. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here.
2: Hey, Bill. Thanks for inviting me to speak about my favorite topic rent control, property rights, and real estate.
3: Guys, I'm glad to have all
0: three of you. And I say that we just get right into it because this is going to be one considerable discussion. Jim, I want to ask you the first question, and then I'm going to defer to Native as my co-host to help me out a little bit. What is rent control, and how did it ever happen?
2: So rent control in America is a rather old thing. It dates back to, we all know about the stories about the First World War, but I want to take you back a little further in history. And this is the case that came out of the Chicago waterfront, very corrupt Chicago waterfront in the 19th century. Now, the grain elevators were those places where grain was stored after the railroads brought it up from the farmers. And the farmers were increasingly upset because they weren't being paid nearly enough, they thought, by the grain elevators and the railroads. And the railroads and the grain elevators had this corrupt monopolistic system together that they were supposedly underpaying the farmers. So the Illinois, because there were a lot of farmers who voted in the state and they had formed these granges, They got together, and they had rent control or price controls put on the grain elevators so the grain elevators would be forced to pay the farmers more, and the farmers would pay less for the storage prices. And that went to the Supreme Court. It was alleged that this is a violation of the contract rights and the property rights of the people who owned the grain elevators. One justice, Justice Field, was pretty upset about this, and he had a warning. He said, look... If we're going to allow this kind of price control, the next thing is, what are we going to have? Rent control and residential apartments? He put it this way. According to the doctrine announced, the legislature may fix the rent of all tenements or apartments used by residents without reference to the cost of their erection. And he thought that was absurd, ridiculous, and it couldn't happen. But, of course, his worst nightmare came true after the First World War. When in Washington, D.C., for example, you had a lot of workers coming in for the war effort. And in New York City, after the war, a lot of people coming back from the war said, hey, New York City is a cool, fun place. There's a lot of jobs here, a lot of economic opportunity. And I don't want to work on Maggie's farm no more. I want to stay in New York. And as a result, there's a housing shortage. So both Washington, D.C. and New York passed rent control measures. These are temporary measures to take control during the wartime, uh, and they eventually expired. Uh, In Washington, the Supreme Court said no to an extension past the war. and said, look, the reason for this is gone in New York. It uh, kind of went away. There was a housing shortage for a while, but when that went away, rents were reimposed, and people built lots and lots of apartments because they could make money on them again. And so rent control seemed to be dead until World War II, when we had another so-called housing emergency, and there was wage and prices controls put on for the war emergency. And and this time, although parts of it went away, once New Yorkers got a taste for rent control, they they never gave up their appetite. And so now we have uh, rent stabilization, which is a kinder and gentler form of rent control in New York. Um, But also, this is spread across the country. California has rent control in various cities, and there's a statewide mandate now. Oregon just adopted rent control, 7% annual increase, plus a factor for inflation. Uh, And as you alluded to earlier in the show, St. Paul just passed their own rent control measures, being one of the most drastic in the country, 3% cap, no consideration for any kind of inflation. And as we're facing higher and higher inflation these days, uh, this is really going, the rubber's gonna hit the road very soon where people in St. Paul are gonna be making less and less money on their rental property. Now you combine these laws, these rent stabilization or rent control laws, calling them what you will, on top of laws that forbid you to get rid of tenants, cannot move back into your apartment, you cannot abrogate leases, Sometimes you cannot get rid of a tenant for much of any cause, no less good cause. So all these things combine to make it economically more and more difficult to own rental housing. So that's in a nutshell what rent control is, where it came from, and where it is going today.
1: Jim, this is Nativ. What can you tell us about the economic impact of rent control and regulation in terms of creating and or depressing housing? And is there any, any consensus on that impact?
2: Economists disagree on almost everything except one thing. A survey a few years ago of economists across this political spectrum, 98% of them agreed that rent control does nothing to improve the supply of housing. If anything, it's only a short-term beta effect. But there is another economist called Assar Lindbeck who wrote that next to bombing, rent control is the most destructive thing in cities. And so there's a book put out actually a few years ago by the Fraser Institute, and it had a series of photographs, black and white photographs in this book, comparing a city that had been bombed during World War II to a neighborhood in New York City that was subject to rent control at the time, back when it was very draconian, uh, the way it's returning now. But looking at these photographs side by side, You couldn't tell which one was a neighborhood in Nagasaki, which one is a neighborhood in Germany that had been bombed out, and which one was in Brooklyn, New York, or the Bronx that had been affected by rent control. And so the economic impact of rent control is universally acknowledged by economists with a few minor lefty exemptions here and there, uh, but they're very minor. I 98% agree that rent control does only limit the supply of housing, which, of course, if you limit any commodity, the price will go up. I mean, this is just cause and effect. So if you have a city with lots of rent control, anything that isn't touched by rent control is going to have a very high price, and people will not have enough Places to live in that city will begin to deteriorate, not be replaced, and people will have to move out into the outlying suburbs or in different cities because it's become too expensive to live there in the first place.
1: What are the shades of the different variations of rent control regulation throughout the country, and how does New York rent regulations compare to the rest of the country?
2: Yeah, so different cities and different parts of the country and different states have all their own unique regimes, and some of them could be fairly mild, such as Oregon's new one at 7% capital and annual increases plus CPI. And, and you know, I should say, incidentally, when you have a rent control scheme and a cap, most landlords are going to go for the cap every year in and out. Because if they don't, they'll fall farther behind and they won't be able to catch up if there are significant expenses that they have to have. And most rent control regimes across the country allow for recovery of investments for improvements, Say you need a new air conditioning system, you need a new roof, that kind of thing. There are ways of going to the various rent boards and getting recoupment for those for the expenses that are incurred. Now... In California, for example, their different cities have different regimes for rent control, and they have different regimes for mobile home rent control. And some of these are rather draconian where you only get a percentage of the of the consumer price index rather than a fixed percentage plus an assessment for uh, the inflation rate. Uh, now, New York City is quite unique, and it has one regime for older units, and it has another regime for newer units. And for a while, since 1969, New York has this rent stabilization idea. And that was, as like I said earlier, a kinder and gentler form of rent control that was supposed to take into account the costs that landlords would have. It took into account the fact when the rents got high enough for wealthy tenants that the rent controls could be eased and backed off and eliminated. But, not leaving well enough alone, the legislature in twenty nineteen drastically amended the New York City rent control provisions and to make them much more draconian, I would say in some cases punitive. And now it's very difficult to recoup the costs of improvements that are made to an apartment building, even necessary improvements. You're you're very limited in what you can get back in return for that. And it's spread over a very long period of years, decades. Talk about amateurization for tax purposes. It's you know, usually seven years for equipment. Well, these are just spread over for a much longer period of time. There are very severe penalties for overcharging. That's limitations has been cut way back. So you go further back in time for some of these things. So there's very little certainty that a landlord has. Did he do the right thing or not in a particular case? So the 2019 amendments really were designed, I think, to stick it to the landlords to make it very difficult for them to basically make a fair living from uh, rental properties. And this has an especial impact on the small mom and pops that are not highly capitalized, that are simply having some apartments or one building or two buildings or something of that nature. Uh, so it's, it's going to be very difficult going forward. And my fear is that this aggressive type of rent control that we now see again in New York and that we see in places like St. Paul are going to lead to the hollowing out of some of the cities and gutting the buildings. And it's going to create a series of con- adverse consequences. That may or may not have been intended, but are certainly going to
0: happen. Jim, this is Bill, and, and that was an incredible explanation of what has happened and what is happened and Nativ's questions. And you mentioned the 2019 changes to the New York rent laws, and that was the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act, June of 2019. Now, I think a lot of people are under the impression that. You know, that was a new law, but that really was an amendment to the existing law. Like you said, the existing law was kinder and gentler. I mean, it wasn't ideal, but you still had the opportunity to increase rents. Now you really just don't. So, what's happening to speak to what you just said is that the unintended consequence of this is that some apartments just can't be re rented. I mean, they've been occupied for. You know, forty years, thirty-five years, fifty years, whatever it is, and to renovate those apartments and make them livable is just too expensive, and you can't re- recoup the cost. So what that does is it decreases the inventory of available rentals that would be an affordable rental if the rent laws was the way they were before two thousand nineteen. That would still be an affordable rental. the The other thing is is that the market rate tenants that are paying market rate. They have to subsidize the low rents or the zero rents on these other units. And there's a shortage there too. So what happens is there's a unnatural increase in rents, especially now if you look in the newspapers, the New York newspapers, they talk about how all these people got these deals during the pandemic because a lot of people fled the city and there was a very high vacancy rate. And so people were getting apartment deals that just had not been available Previously, for years, maybe decades. And now those rents are going up 10%, 15%, 20%, in some cases 30, 40% when the lease renews. And those are all coming to renewal now because here we are in 2021. Those pandemic deals were pretty much the summer of 2020 through maybe January of 2021. And those people either have to pay or move like you said somewhere else that's not as convenient as being here in New York City and a lot of people are coming back to New York City so that's increasing the demand for these apartments and part of this is the legislature comes up with these laws one now is good cause eviction and that will cap rent increases on market rate apartments just like the St. Paul law that just passed and so Property owners have to increase the rents because like you said, you have to get the max now because if it's going to be limited later on, what are you going to do? So you got to get the most that you can possibly get now. So we can certainly understand a landlord's perspective there. And all of this is because of draconian rent laws. So what do we do? Let's talk about the case, Chip and others against the city of New York and others. And also the two cases that you won in California. And also, do you think that the rent control passing in St. Paul is going to increase awareness and have a positive impact on the challenge? Or do you think that it's going to contribute to the idea of, oh, yeah, this is happening, and it happened there, and now it's happening here, and now it can happen somewhere else, and we end up even going more further back than we already are.
2: I am the eternal optimist. And when I see something as bad as what passed in St. Paul, and I look at what's happening in New York City, I think that eventually the progressives who are pushing these things are going to find that they bit off more than they can chew. So you look at the CHIP lawsuit, for example. This is a lawsuit brought by an organization of landlords in New York City, and they brought it in federal court challenging the 2019 amendments, plus some aspects of what have been around for a while. And they are arguing, among other things, that these regulations simply go too far and are a regulatory taking of the property. Now, before the 2019 Amendment, and I had some discussions about this lawsuit before and I said, you know, this this is going to be really, really tough one to win. But after the 2019 Amendment, I thought, you know, this thing actually has a chance of winning. It's now going to be argued soon, in the next few months, at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, Federal Circuit. And when you can look at the story that could be told about how draconian the twenty nineteen amendments are. Uh, I think the Second Circuit may look at this askance. And I think the same thing with St. Paul, Minnesota. Landlords are going to sue them that as sure as day follows night. And eventually one of these cases is going to get up the United States Supreme Court. And our Supreme Court today is has a better understanding of property rights than it has had in decades perhaps for my lifetime. And so I think that these laws that are just pushing so far, I mean, I, can you have, I just can't imagine writing a law that is limiting you to a 3 percent increase with no consideration of the Consumer Price Index. And what are you thinking? I mean, do you really think you're going to get away with that forever, or are you going to just destroy St. Paul first? But now we have a Supreme Court that I think is uh, more understanding of what's going on and so I think that there is a good chance that some of this stuff, uh, the worst parts of it at any rate, could be shot down by the Supreme Court. So they said that the CHIP lawsuit is about to be argued, and it, you could just take a few looks at some of the things in the CHIP lawsuit, they not able to recover expenses that you put into improvements, your inability to get rid of deadbeat tenants, plus the rent moratoria from COVID that have been going on in various states and cities and the federal government, I think enough is soon going to be enough.
1: I'm in agreement with you, Jim, that uh, when I heard about this rent control bill that recently passed in St. Paul, Minnesota, I actually think that because bills like this laws like this are getting promulgated, that it's actually going to raise the national conversation and it's going to raise the national conversation such that ultimately it is going to find its way to the Supreme Court because there are going to be enough lawsuits about this where the Supreme Court is going to want to tackle this issue and when you have laws as draconian as that which was passed in St. Paul and what they're now considering in New York state as a whole this good cause eviction bill and variations of it that were recently passed in upstate New York I think ultimately it's going to make its way up the court system and I can't I can't imagine that the supreme the, the current supreme court The way it's presently constituted is going to is going to um, look at this and not have some um, critical uh, takes on many of these many of these laws, which just really chip away at property rights. And we've seen it recently, even in the the appellate court here in New York, when when they recently had to reach a decision on the uh, legality of the guarantee law, which I believe you're familiar with, Jim which is that the there was there were private contracts that individuals entered into landlords and tenants the individuals associated with a, a corporation or an entity signed the guarantee and that the legislature passed laws such that they said these guarantees are no longer enforceable and they got right in the way of a private contract and though that guarantee law was challenged and recently, there was a decision after the district court issued a decision uh, granting a motion to dismiss, saying, no, we're going to have to have uh, further facts on this and further discovery and see exactly where this leads. And so it really raises this question of whether this guarantee law is also going to be found to be unconstitutional. And we know that the, the Supreme Court took issue with uh, parts of the eviction moratorium. So you see the courts taking a stand that they are going to seek to further protect property rights, and ultimately, I think they're going to reach it on the substantive level, specifically as it relates to rent control and rent regulation as a whole, and hopefully we'll see that result um, from the CHIP and RSA lawsuit to which you alluded.
2: And the lawsuit on the guarantee clause is particularly fascinating, because that one, the court spent all of its efforts talking about the Contracts Clause. Now, that's the clause in the Constitution that says that states shall not impair the sanctity of contracts, that that states shall not interfere with contracts and impair them. And for a long time, courts didn't pay very much attention to that. They essentially said, look, we have to pay attention to contracts unless the Reason for some state law is really important and advances some public policy, then we're going to say it's okay. But this court, the Second Circuit, looking at the guarantee clause, said, no, the contract clause still means something, even with it being watered down over the years. And by simply taking away the right of a landlord to hold somebody personally accountable for the failure to pay rent that's a viol- That's a potential violation of the Contracts Clause. Now, the court sent it back down to District Court to look at some of the details about exactly what was happening. But here the court raised a doctrine that really hasn't been effectively used in a, you know, 50 years since the New Deal, and it raised it again. And I think it's a warning. It's a warning to those people who want to impose really draconian rent control and take away existing property rights and contract rights that you know, there there may there may be pain of the piper for this stuff after a while.
3: Jim, it's Craig. One question that I have for you with regard to the mindset of these circuit court judges, the Supreme Court judges, district court judges, listening to these cases, ruling on these cases. Do you believe, or do you have any reason to believe that they are getting their cue from the Supreme Court of the United States, and they're saying to themselves? You know, this is a different Supreme Court. They really value property rights of individual landowners. I don't want to be reversed on appeal and therefore I'm going to rule the way that the Supreme Court, I think the Supreme Court would rule on this matter, uh because, like you said, the Second Circuit is finally ruled with respect to the uh guarantor law and used the contracts clause, which hasn't been used since the New Deal. Uh so is it- do you, do you feel like the the whole federal court system with respect to property rights is changing and judges on the bench are changing their perception knowing what can come down the pike if they do get appealed
2: yeah that's a good insight and i think it's a couple of things going on first of all we had a significant number of judges appointed by the prior president And these judges have an intellectual background that is much more grounded in conservative principles, principles that respect property rights and economic reality. Now, think what you will of the prior president and for all his interesting quirks. He did appoint judges who understand property a lot better than some that were on the court before. And so there is a fair number of judges who have the intellectual background in this area to to begin with. They Take a look at the Second Circuit case we've been talking about on the guarantee clause, the Mandela's case. I think that's how it's pronounced. And the long discussion in this decision, it's 108 pages long, and it talks about the contracts clause page after page after page. Uh, That's something that just wouldn't happen with The judges who used to be on the court, they wouldn't have understood it at all. But, I mean, this this judge has a footnote where he cites a variety of law review articles, one by Richard Epstein and others that just go on and on talking about the contract clause. So these people are intellectually very deep. There's a deep field of intellectual understanding Uh, property rights, contract clause, and constitutional interpretation. But I don't think we had quite as deep a field before. And you're right about the Supreme Court. Some judges don't like being overturned. Some on the Ninth Circuit couldn't care less, and they enjoy being overturned, I think. But a lot of judges don't like being overturned. And I think they see that there's a little more leeway here, because on the Supreme Court, we have some appointees who also have a rather deep understanding of constitutional jurisprudence and economic realities that didn't necessarily exist to the same degree previously. So I think we are in a good place right now to challenge some of these more draconian laws that are being put down. Uh, It's not that the progressives aren't going to give up. We talked about St. Paul, as you also know that in Boston we have a new mayor, Mayor Wu, who is running on a platform of imposing rent control. This is years after the state of Massachusetts got rid of rent control because it wasn't working. But she wants to try to put it in again. So there's going to be conflict. But I think that the courts now are in a a very good place as far as understanding the consequences of some of these more um, absurd and draconian rent control provisions.
0: I have some things that I'm curious about. Any one of you could maybe help me with this. So whoever wants to go, let just go ahead and do it. You know, you hear about this circuit court and that circuit court and the state court and the Supreme Court and the federal court. and g- Give me an idea of the process that a case like the ones we're talking about, have to go through before they're finally decided and what the typical timeline is. And can you start anywhere or do you have to start at gate one?
2: Yeah, I'll I'll take this because we've had had a dozen cases at the Supreme Court over the years. So you begin by filing in a trial court and this could either be a state trial court or a federal trial court. Which one? The attorney has to choose based on Frankly, where they think the result's going to be most favorable to begin with. If it's a state law you're challenging and you're using a state constitutional provision, you can go to state court. But if there are federal issues involved in federal constitutional laws, then oftentimes you'll want to be in federal court. And the reason for federal court is there's less likely to be hometown that is A state court may be much friendlier with a state administration or a local city government. And the federal courts uh, draw their judges from a broader geographic area, so they may be less inclined to rule simply because these are my political buddies over here. Uh, And the federal courts are often uh, more attuned to federal constitutional issues than state courts are as there's certainly exceptions in both directions there. So you begin in trial court for virtually all of the cases. There are exceptions, some cases and some regulatory issues and a few others. You can go directly to a court of appeal, but generally you're going to start at the trial court. If you're in federal trial court, step two would be to a federal court of appeal. That would be the Second Circuit if you're in New York, um, if you're in New Jersey, we're talking about the third circuit down in Virginia, you got the fourth. And then as you go down to Texas, you got the fifth and so on and so forth until you get to the ninth out in California. If you're in a state court, you go next to the state court of appeals. And, uh, that can be called different things in most states. It's called your court of appeal, but in New York, your lower court is called the Supreme Court and your highest appeal court is the court of appeals. So you go to your next level, and then if you have a third level where you go up to there, only then, once you complete your case at the either the federal court of appeals or the highest available state court of appeal that you're able to get your case heard in, then you can go and ask the Supreme Court to take the case. Now, at the timeline on this could be anything. If it's a simple case, We can be talking about getting up to the appellate level in a matter of a year or two. Um, If it's a complicated case, it can go back and forth. It could be just a a number of years, and and we've had cases that just drag on for over a decade sometimes, going up like yo-yos from the trial court, court of appeal, trial court, back to the court of appeal. But eventually the case may present significant enough federal issues dealing with federal law or the federal constitution that you ask the United States Supreme Court to take the case. The loser in a particular case, either from state or federal appeal courts, will ask the Supreme Court to take it. And they take about roughly 2% of the cases that they hear. Uh, if they tell you that they're going to hear the case, argument is fairly quick and the decision will come out within a year, whereas sometimes courts of appeal will take many years, two, three sometimes, to come out with a decision But the Supreme Court is relatively quick. But the trick is, of course, getting a case heard by the Supreme Court in the first place. As I said, only 2%. Um, Now, that, of course, includes appeals written by prisoners in the back of envelopes. Uh, But attorneys that are cases where the litigants are represented by attorneys who have some experience in the Supreme Court, uh, they have a higher percentage, get up to 5%. Some attorneys, even 10%, the ones that are really good and knowledgeable and expensive. Uh, and so you know, getting a case in the Supreme Court is tough. And so you have to you know, help the Supreme Court understand why this is such an important case. There are big federal issues involved. It's going to affect a lot of people. If you get a lot of friend of the court briefs being filed saying how important the case is, that helps as well. Because simply because you lose a case that a court appealed doesn't mean the Supreme Court's going to take it. Um, and they, they turn down a vast majority of them.
0: If the Supreme Court does take it and you lose, then you're done?
2: That's generally the end of the road on that issue. Um, it could be that it depends also partly why you lose on. Sometimes you lose on procedural grounds. The thing wasn't brought properly. It wasn't brought in the right place at the right time, whatever. Uh, Perhaps there were other issues you could have argued and didn't. There might, this is a very strong might, be an opportunity to bring a new case uh, with slightly different issues that hadn't been decided and couldn't have been decided before. Um There is a lot of depends and maybe these things like attorneys love to say on the one hand, but on the other hand, on the third hand, and the fourth hand, and so on. But generally, once a case is lost in the Supreme Court, that is the end of the line. Unless you think that the decision was so wrong, it might be overturned. As for example, there's a Kelo case that dealt with eminent domain of the little pink house up in Connecticut. And there... People are asking the Supreme Court to take up new cases so they can overturn the old kilo decision. And so that's always a possibility as well. But generally, if you lose at the United States Supreme Court, you lose.
0: Does anybody have any comment on while all this time, and I'm sure lots of money, is being spent on all these cases where one group wants rent control and another doesn't and the reason is there just isn't enough affordable housing why aren't we just making more affordable housing yeah that stumped everybody
3: right you know what,
2: jim? <laughs> well i could take the first i could. I, yeah
3: I, you know what jim i was going to piggyback on that it's craig and say Are they looking at the 2% of all economists that do believe rent control is a viable economic uh, plan?
2: Frankly, I think that the advocates of rent control could not care less, one way or the other, whether rent control makes economic sense or not, because rent control makes lots of political sense, right? If you have a platform of rent control, and you are in a jurisdiction where there are a substantial number of renters versus homeowners or apartment owners, it is political capital to call for rent control. Tom Hayden in California, after he was done with his Vietnam Day opposition uh, program, he went into rent control in Santa Monica, and he built his political empire based on that. So there's a lot of political capital in advocating for rent control. And if you don't really care about economics and you care about the short-term benefits of rent control, then it makes perfectly good sense. You know, I'd like to say that rent control is like giving some poor shivering person out in the street on a cold day a big bucket of soup by pouring the soup over the head so you feel warm right away. But soon the chill is going to set in as the as soup cools and your clothes are all wet and then you're shivering. But it doesn't matter. You felt good for a little bit, just long enough to cast your vote for the person who gave you the soup, right? So, I, I mean, perhaps I'm just being a little too cynical, but I don't think the advocates of rent control really care what the long-term consequences are because the political consequences are so favorable.
0: So this is politically biased. and. That's part of the reason why the government is supposed to represent all the people, but instead it's transferring what is supposed to be a public responsibility, affordable housing, to private property owners. And that's what all these challenges are about.
2: Because that is part of the essence of the Constitution, to protect the interests of everybody, including minority interests of property owners and landowners. When the Constitution was adopted, the drafters of the Constitution were rather upset that what was happening in a number of states, where you had a significant number of borrowers, farmers, who had borrowed money and owed money to creditors, and they couldn't afford to pay back their loans, and the creditors were asking to be paid back. And so what some states were doing, were passing laws, allowing the borrowers to get away with not paying their debts. Rhode Island, for example, had a paper money statute where they just printed paper money, gave it to the farmers, and said, pay your debts with this. Now, the creditors said, we're not going to take this paper money. So Rhode Island passed a law saying you must take the paper money. So some of the creditors left the state. Now, then the Rhode Island Supreme Court got involved and found that this paper money scheme was a violation of the Rhode Island Constitution. So what did the legislature do? Did it get rid of the paper money scheme? No, it got rid of the Supreme Court. And it was examples like that that had James Madison and his fellow drafters of the Constitution really concerned that the states were not doing nearly enough to protect property rights and to protect the rights of people that were necessary for the economy to run. And that's why they passed limitations on the abrogation of contracts. That's why they passed the takings clause eventually that property cannot be taken without just compensation. That's why they passed the Constitution that had the checks and balances to prevent one faction from gaining advantage over another. Um, and that is why sometimes constitutional law is the only resort to protect the uh, people against some of these really draconian schemes to transfer wealth from one set of voters to another set of voters which is what happens when a democracy is unhinged and untethered to any kind of uh, limitation.
1: Jim Nativ here. Um, Here in New York... Many landlords are really pinning their hopes on the CHIP RSA lawsuit that you previously mentioned. Can you tell us a little more about the CHIP RSA lawsuit and where you see its strengths and weaknesses and how two recent California cases specifically Cedar Point and Pacdell, might impact upon its determination?
2: Yeah, so first a little bit about the CHIP lawsuit. This is the one I said before is brought by a series of landlords Challenging some of the more draconian aspects of the New York rent stabilization law as amended in 2019 And they are arguing that a lot of this could be a taking of the property rights Because the resources that belong to the landlords are essentially being transferred to the tenants And the landlords are have a lot less ability to recoup the return on their investment It's causing them serious economic harm one of the things that courts look at in determining whether or not a regulation affects the taking are, are two basic things. And the first one is you look at a balancing test. Say that you have a regulation that hurts a lot of the value of the property. Courts will look at, well, how big of an economic impact is this regulation on the property owner? What were the property owner's reasonable investment back expectations? And three, what is the character of the regulation? So for this type of rent control, the argument is that Chip is bringing that, first of all, this is having a dramatic impact on the economics of the rent control owners. If we can't make money on our apartments anymore, we think that's a taking. The second aspect is, what are your investment back expectations? Now, the trial court in this case, in the Chip case, said that, look, you're buying property in New York City, you should expect rent control. Well, true enough, but you were given the idea that there was going to be a regime that will at least allow you to recoup your investment and not be too draconian, and that all changed in 2019. So that's the argument there. And the third aspect is the character of the government regulation. And then it comes down to, is this really a regulation that is trying to advance the public interest? Or is this a robbing Peter to pay Paul because Paul has more votes than Peter sort of regulation? So those are coming up. The second time you can see a taking that the courts will look at is it's called a physical invasion outtaking, where somebody comes onto your property and you can't remove them. That could be a physical invasion. Now, there's a classic case out of New York City where a, an apartment owner named Mrs. Loretto was rather upset about the cable television cables and boxes that were being put onto her apartment building, and she couldn't keep them off because of a law in New York City. So she sued, said that's a taking. And the court said, yeah, no matter how minor the actual impact is, anytime your property is physically invaded, it's a taking, and you're entitled to something for that. Now, in the end, Mrs. Loretto only got a dollar in return. Uh, argument was that these things added value to our apartment, if anything. But in any event, the court has this rule that any kind of physical invasions is taking. So now fast forward to two decisions that came from the Supreme Court out of California cases that we had uh, earlier this year. First, the Cedar Point case. Now, in California, in 1976, a law was passed saying that if you are a union organizer... From the united farm workers or similar union you have a right to go on to farm property a packing house property or any kind of agricultural operation you have the right to go on to that property and advocate for unionization and you can do that for three hours a day 120 days a year so in 1976 the california supreme court said that's okay it's not a taking Now, we looked at that since then and said, you know, a lot has changed at the Supreme Court with regard to takings doctrine, and a lot has changed with regard to the membership of the Supreme Court. We think it's time to take another run at this in federal courts. So we sued on behalf of a a couple of owners. Uh, We had a uh, gentleman who owns a strawberry packing plant, uh, which is in Northern California, which essentially takes those little tiny strawberries and packs them for the larger strawberry operations, the same ones that ends up in the nurseries that you see in the spring. And he was busily going along with his workers about 5 a.m. on an October morning in 2015, and when he had dozens of union organizers barge onto the property with bullhorns interfering with the operation, encouraging everybody there to join the union to go on strike and to leave the building. And he was outraged. And he was told by his attorneys there's nothing he could do about that. And uh, he eventually contacted us, and we sued on his behalf. And we had argued, eventually to the Supreme Court, that this was a physical invasion of his property. And it was a taking of his property. It was essentially a taking of an easement, an easement that would have otherwise allowed people onto the property for these three hours a day, 120 days a year. Now, the Ninth Circuit didn't agree. Ninth Circuit said, nah, it's not a taking of the property because, look, he still has the property for the other days of the year, the 240 days a year that the unions can't go on to it. And he has the property for all those 120 days for 21 hours. Uh, so what's the big deal? And the Supreme Court agreed with us that it was a big deal. It says this is a physical invasion of the property, and it is a taking. And It doesn't really matter how severe the economic impact is. A landowner has a right to keep people off of his or her property should the landowner decide to do that. It's one thing. You can invite people onto your property, for example, if you want them to rent it or if you want them to buy things in your store, but otherwise, you have a right to keep people off of your property. Now, why is this relevant to rent control? Because we're talking about you know, apartment dwellers, not union organizers. Well, that's because there is a case that was decided a few years earlier called Yi versus City of Escondido. It was a rent control case, and it was dealing with mobile home rents. And there the Supreme Court says, look, there's no taking here because you have invited the tenants onto your property. And if you want to ask them to leave and go out of business, you can do that at any time. But that right essentially has been taken away with some of these vacancy decontrol issues and the, you know, force because evictions, uh, you simply can't get rid of people. So it's beginning to look more and more like a physical invasion, like in the Cedar Point case where the union organizers came on. So there is this argument that if you are not able to get rid of a tenant because you don't want the tenant there for cause or otherwise, then there's been a physical invasion of the property. And the second case came out of the Supreme Court last June was one called Pacdell versus City and County of San Francisco. And here is a case where the Pacdells bought an apartment in an apartment building in San Francisco, tenants in common. And a tenancy in common kind of archaic, but there's still areas that this occurs where everybody buys the apartment building together and they own the common areas, but they have the right to use their own particular apartment. And when Pactell has bought the property, there is an understanding they're going to try to convert it into condominium ownership at some point in time. Mr. Pacdell had a job in the Midwest. Plan was to buy this apartment now and eventually come back to San Francisco and retire in the apartment that he bought. Now, San Francisco made it very difficult to convert properties from tenancy in common into condominium ownership. In fact, there's a lottery for that. And very few people would win in the lottery year in and year out. So the Packdale thought, that's never really going to happen. We'll own it as tenancy in common, not a big deal. But then San Francisco changed the rules of the game. They said, we're going to allow you to convert your tenancy in common into a condominium ownership. Well, that's just what the people who own this tenancy in common wanted. However, there was a catch. And the catch was that if you were to convert an apartment from a private ownership tenancy in common into a condominium, if you had a tenant, that tenant would have to be given a lifetime lease. Now, before this law was changed, the Pacdells had rented out their property to a tenant, because they were going to be in the Midwest for a few years, and it didn't make sense to leave this place empty while they were still working in the Midwest, planning their return to California to retire. Now, with this property being converted into a condominium, the tenant suddenly has a lifetime lease, and Pacdellas can do nothing about that. So their argument is, this is a taking. I can't get this tenant out. It's a physical invasion. Moreover, you're telling me as a condition of converting the property into a condominium, I have to give something to this tenant, and this does, has no relationship to any impact. I mean, the city of San Francisco justifies this condition on the fact that there are so few rentals in San Francisco, and there's a shortage of housing, but what's this going to do to contribute to this, end the end of shortage of housing? You are going to have one person living in it versus somebody else. Uh, And that, of course, has nothing to do with the shortage of housing. So the PacDel sued. We sued on their behalf. And the Ninth Circuit, naturally, ruled against us, saying that, well, we couldn't really be in the federal court in the first place because there was some procedure that the PacDels had to follow after San Francisco told them they were going to lose that procedure if they tried it. But they had to try it anyway, according to the Ninth Circuit. So the Supreme Court said, nah. You don't have to try that anyway. You can go directly into court now and argue that it's a taking. So now the case has been sent back down below and we're back in trial court to argue that what has happened is this property's been taken from the Pactels. But these two cases show, if nothing else, that the Supreme Court fully understands property rights and fully understands the impact of some of these regulations, whether they're for agricultural labor or for landlord-tenant relationships understands what these sort of regulations have on property rights, and more importantly, how they could violate the property rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution.
1: And so you think there'll be significant impact as it relates to the CHIP RSA lawsuit?
2: I think that it is going to have a positive impact on the CHIP RSA lawsuit for two reasons. And I'll say that with a caveat, first of all, There is no predicting how a court will rule. I will say that also that the CHIP lawsuit is an uphill battle because it is trying to do something that hasn't succeeded before. But the reasons why these Supreme Court decisions are favorable is that first of all, shows that the Supreme Court is more understanding and solicitous toward property rights. Where a case that was brought 10 or 15 years ago might not have had success has a better chance of success now. A case 10 or 15 years ago that had a strong dissent, that dissent might now be turned into a majority opinion. The second reason why these Supreme Court cases might be helpful for CHIP is the very doctrines that they talk about on physical invasion, making that a stronger doctrine than it had been before, uh, making the doctrine of the ability to challenge these sort of regulations helpful as well. The trial court in the CHIP case found some procedural flaws that were uh, allegedly fatal to the CHIP plaintiffs bringing their lawsuit, whether this regulation had actually been applied or whether it was a facial, that is, every time it's applied, uh, in and in, invalid or unconstitutional. And so these procedural hurdles are not too dissimilar to the ones that the PACDELs faced when they were challenging their ordinance in San Francisco. And the court saw through those procedural problems. And for that reason, the Second Circuit might see that the procedural problems that the trial court found in the CHIP case are are procedural problems that should not be fatal to bringing the case forward. As I said, we can't predict what a court's ever going to do. That would be a fool's errand, but I think I am more optimistic now, certainly in the wake of those two decisions, than I was before.
1: And you mentioned facial challenge and you mentioned as-applied challenge. Can you just give us a little more background as to the distinction between the two, whether the CHIP RSA lawsuit has a better chance of surviving a facial challenge or an as-applied challenge?
2: Yeah, so as-applied challenge generally looks at how a regulation is applied to a particular instance, say a particular landlord who is not able to raise rent by a particular amount. And the landlord can argue that that in and of itself is unconstitutional. It's a much narrower challenge in some ways, although a favorable victory could have broad implications, and it's an easier one to bring if you have a particular case that's brought in a particular way. Now, a facial challenge will argue that the very wording of the regulation, here are the amendments to the Rent Stabilization Act, uh, the very wording of the regulation shows that it is unconstitutional, and certainly virtually all or at least a great number of cases. Some courts say it has to be every single instance that you can think of, but the general consensus is it has to be shown to be unconstitutional in a great majority of the cases where it could possibly be brought. So the difficulty there is if a court can think of some instances, where a regulation could be applied in a constitutional manner, then it is not necessarily susceptible to a facial challenge. And so facial challenges on a regulation are often more difficult to bring because there always might be some situations where a landlord, for example, could get a rent increase if he or she applies for it, where uh, the Costs of operating the building are reasonable enough, so he doesn't need to have a rent increase. So it's not really a taking when that regulation is applied to this case. So if there are enough instances like that, a facial challenge becomes more difficult. So in the chip lawsuits, we had two sets of plaintiffs: one that had an as-applied challenge, and one that was primarily based on a facial challenge. And the trial court thought, well, you know, we don't have enough facts to support an as-applied challenge. And two, there could always be exceptions to the facial challenge. There always could be exceptions where it could be applied in a constitutional way. So even if you had the facts, it's not enough. So they've kind of lost it on both grounds. And now that it's up to the Court of Appeal, I think that the court is uh, probably going to look at this and say, well, whether or not you had the facts to prove an as-applied challenge, uh, there's enough going on here. We think that there could be a a good ground for a facial challenge because the draconian nature of these 2019 amendments uh, has such a severe impact that it could very well be susceptible to a facial challenge. But as I said, this is tough. There is a Supreme Court case a number of years ago dealing with a coal mining company in Pennsylvania where the court said that, you know, a facial battle, a facial takings claim is an uphill battle. Uh, because it's so difficult to win these, and that was dealing with how much coal you had to leave in the ground and that kind of thing. And so we know a facial challenge is difficult, but uh, sometimes that's the only kind you can bring. So we will see what the Second Circuit does.
3: Jim it's uh Craig again I have one more question for you with respect to the as applied and and facial challenges to the to the rent laws Chip and RSA sued the city and the state with respect to rent stabilization from 1974 and they said that is unconstitutional right and then they waited until the 2019 rent laws were were passed, and then they added that to their claims. I- is that at all fatal, or would you characterize that as possibly fatal to their, to their lawsuit, or you, do you believe that the courts are going to sort of bifurcate their claim and say, you know what, 2019 was a little wonky, and maybe that, as applied or facially, is unconstitutional, but we'll keep the rent stabilization regime as it was prior to 2019 could that happen
1: that
2: could happen that way uh, again it's so hard to predict what's going to happen in the future but the original rent stabilization law had been around for a long time and it has survived a number of challenges now ship thought that they had some new arguments based on developments at the supreme court in cases dealing with takings of raisins of, of all things um And they thought they had some arguments that could modernize the challenges that that had failed in the past. And they originally conceived this case as bringing it against the original Rent Stabilization Act. I think the state kind of handed them a little bit of a gift with the 2019 amendments. And in fact, that it showed how much worse this thing was. Uh, Now, if the court wants to split the baby, it might. It might throw out the whole thing. Uh, It just might focus on 2019. So I I don't know uh, exactly what the court's going to do, but it it certainly makes the case more interesting. And the 2019 amendment, I think, laid bare the motivations behind some of this rent control. And I think the the courts may find that uh, the 2019 amendments are enough to bring down everything together. That's what I would hope, but it's pretty hard to say right now because we... uh, We haven't had the oral argument yet, and we haven't heard what the kind of questions that justices have.
0: When is going to be the oral argument?
2: I was
1: told it might be in January. My understanding as well that it was going to be January 2022. Jim, in April of 2020, there was a decision from the New York Court of Appeals entitled uh, Regina Metro versus New York State Division of Housing and Community Renewal. It was actually four cases decided in one. I argued one of those cases. And among other things, it, it ruled that the retroactive application of HESPA, which was the June 2019 uh, rent regulation laws, was found to be unconstitutional and violative of due process. How do you think that portends, and how do you think that will that will that will impact Chip RSA lawsuit, if at all?
2: So it was a very narrow aspect of the rent control laws, the 2019 uh, amendments, the the retroactivity of a, a rather arcane uh, aspect of rent control, dealing with the decontrol of luxury apartments and the timing of that, and. The fact that the Rent Stabilization Board said a certain practice of decontrol was legal, and it said that for years and years and years, and all of a sudden the court says, no, nope, you've been wrong all this time, so everyone has to go back in time to rejigger rents and raise them because some of the decontrol wasn't done properly. And then the 2019 Amendment said suddenly, like, oh, we're going to go back a lot further, and we're going to impose treble damages a lot further. And I think that that was just too much for the majority of your court of appeal. Now, this is not a unanimous decision. It was a four-to-three decision, but I think the court was adamant that the imposition of these sort of punitive uh, look-back measures where you go back in time, before anybody realized there was any problem and that you're liable for doing things that seemed to be correct at the time based on what the administrative agency said, and now you're not only liable for undoing some of that, but you're some punitive treble damages as well and attorney fees. I think the court thought that was biting off more than they can chew. And the court looked at a particular case where the retroactive liability of a coal mining law was struck down. That was when coal mining operations had to pay for black lung disease of people well in the past of even before the coal mining operation came into effect. And the court said that kind of retroactive liability, it violates the Constitution, either because it's a taking or it's a violation of the due process clause. So your court in the Regina case in the New York Court of Appeal, when it looked at that said, This is just like what was happening in this Supreme Court case dealing with black lung disease and the coal miners. It was just a punitive, retroactive look back, and that violates the Constitution. It violates the due process clause. You simply cannot have that kind of retroactive liability imposed. Now, I think that is a fascinating decision because one would normally not think that the New York Court of Appeal would rule in favor of property owners. They're not known for that, and that's an understatement. And so here you have the New York Court of Appeal in a four-to-three decision ruling in favor of the landowners. Um, That's pretty remarkable in itself. It's especially remarkable if you look at the dissenting judges, where they say, this is a throwback to the bad old days of 1905 when the workers had no rights whatsoever and the Supreme Court was breaking down workers' rights in this case called Walker, and that was a terrible old time, and now we're returning to that, and this is just like letting the robber barons take over. And this dissent from three of the judges on the New York Court of Appeal was, was rather uh, intemperate. It was, I, I'm looking at this and I'm scratching my head and said, where do these people come from? Uh, quite clearly, the, the law in question was just uh, too far. So it was very controversial, of course, at the court. The court came out with a correct decision, and that has no legal relevance to what's happening in a CHIP lawsuit. But it does show, I think, that the era that we're in, that the rent stabilization and the rent control advocates are not being given the same leeway they have traditionally, And if you can have the New York Court of Appeal rule in favor of the landowners in this case, I think it's an easier stretch for the Second Circuit in the CHIP case to rule also for the landowners.
0: My question now is, let's say the CHIP case is won in favor of the property owners. And it happens a year from now or two years from now, whatever it is and let's say they do bifurcate it and they say, we're still going to have rent stabilization, but we're going to to change the amendment of 2019 to be more like it was before. Can property owners ask for damages during the period of time that they were subject to HSTPA?
2: That is a question fraught with difficult implications because depending on what parts of these things are ruled unconstitutional, And the reasons for that, such as if they do find a taking uh, and the taking occurred sometime in the past, then yes, the normal remedy for a taking is damages. Now, oftentimes a jurisdiction will be given a choice saying you pay damages for what you've done so far and you can rescind the law going forward or keep the law in place and pay future damages. Now, we're talking about a lot of landlords and a lot of economic harm over the years. And so depending on how far you go back, you have a potential for rather large, substantial damages. And so asking for those damages in a lawsuit in the first place can sometimes make it more difficult for a court to want to go along and rule in your favor. You know, I've counseled people in the past saying, look, if you're upset about the taking, argue the taking and and make it clear that you're not asking for much in the way of damages, that uh, although that is a remedy, you're really interested in getting the jurisdiction to overrule the offending regulation. Because courts will look at it and say, well, holy smokes, if the state of California or whatever has to pay billions of dollars in damages, then I'm going to find a way to rule against the person asking for damages, because that's just too much. I've seen cases like that where landowners are clearly entitled to very large damage awards, but they made the courts uncomfortable and the court ruled against them. So there is the danger of asking for something that could make it very difficult to get any kind of relief. So bottom line is, it really depends on what the Second Circuit does and the way it crafts the victory, Um, but damages are something that are out there, and they cut both ways. They cut in favor of the landowner, but potentially against the landowner's chances of winning.
0: In lieu of continuing the case, could a state legislature voluntarily craft a new law that repeals HSTPA?
2: Yeah, if a legislature passes a law that repeals whatever was being challenged, that could make the existing case moot, meaning that there is no more a legal controversy. Now, if your lawsuit has asked for damages, right, based on what's happened in the past, that's a more difficult situation because although it may make it moot, for damages going forward, it might not eradicate the damages in the past. Sometimes uh, you can do this as part of a settlement negotiation, right, where the uh, legislature and the state attorney general and the plaintiffs get together and say, look, if you pass this law uh, in such and such a way, then we promise we'll drop the lawsuit and we won't ask for damages from the past. So there are ways of dealing with that, but it's complicated.
0: And if the case is won, does it just abolish HSTPA if, if that's the part of it that the case wins on? What happens next? Like, when does everything go back to, quote unquote, the way it used to be?
2: So if the lawsuit is won on particular provisions of the 2019 amendments, those provisions could no longer be enforced. And... Tenants can't sue or get rent increases going forward, so on and so forth. The legislature doesn't necessarily have to change the law. The court can't order the legislature to do something with respect to a law or not. So the law just simply may be unenforceable. And what happens in nine times out of 10 of those cases is that the legislature will go ahead and make amendments to have something of the law that would work. But the the law will be on the books until the legislature takes it off, but the law simply cannot be enforced if the court says that it's unconstitutional.
1: And the odds of the legislature taking it off the books in this current political environment are sort of nil to none.
2: The legislature might take it off the books and replace it with something different that they think will pass constitutional muster uh, that's different enough that it looks like it's done in good faith and not simply done to thwart what the court said, uh, but has some of the same impact. So the legislature can thread this needle in different ways.
1: Yeah, but you're assuming a good-faith legislature as opposed to uh, politicians who are merely pandering to their political base, which again brings us back to the current political environment and the way that many of the legislatures at least here in New York are really are really pandering to the hard left and progressive votes and apart from even considering repealing any aspect of Hesper they're now considering putting in this good cause eviction and make the rent control laws even more draconian than they already are but one of the things you raised and it raises really interesting issues is what happens if certain laws get repealed like think of for example the guarantee law Right, which we discussed before.
0: And I just want to say that guarantee law is for commercial leases, right? Right,
1: Right. yes. So in terms of the guarantee law, and and I'm raising this because this has now come up and I've had clients ask me questions about this, which is what happens if the guarantee law is actually repealed? Meaning, can I then go sue these tenants for the period and time in which the guarantee law was in effect And the trouble I see with that is I can't imagine how a court's going to look at this when you have a tenant who acted upon the guarantee law, who surrendered space based upon the law then in effect at the the time, and if the court was to then say, well, you know what, we're repealing it because it's unconstitutional, and now that tenant who surrendered space based upon the existence of that guarantee law... It's going to be on the hook for the remaining balance of the payments on the lease. That's going to raise some real difficult issue, uh, questions and issues for the court. And I I can't see how it's going to resolve those issues. Those, those are going to be rather weighty issues. And if those weighty issues exist as it concerns the guarantee law, it's going to exist tenfold should Hesper be repealed or, mo- or modified to any extent. What's your take on that?
2: It does raise a very thorny issue as to what happens when the abrogation of the guarantee clause by the legislature is found to be unconstitutional. Can you go against those tenants who would relied upon it? And courts do different things in this kind of context. We have some cases up in the Midwest dealing with certain foreclosure act issues. Where we won in a Supreme Court in one state, and now the city is saying, well, that's only perspective and the people that we were, injuring before, we're still can injure those. And they can't get retroactive relief because the decision is only looking forward. What about those landlords that couldn't get the guarantees during this period that it was still in effect before the court struck it down? That's a really thorny issue. And how your New York courts with that, I could not hazard a guess.
0: Right. Agreed. We're talking about a lot of different topics and some of the moving parts of all this stuff. I hope that what it is that we're saying, you know, people listen to this and actually be more motivated because of the information that we've shared to stick with it.
1: You know, I think that there's also the reality of events. And the reality of events, uh, especially as it concerns New York real estate, is that You have housing conditions such that they're falling apart because landlords are no longer interested in upkeeping their in in the apartments because they can't get any value or value added uh, to to the units due to the fact that their increases are so limited. You have families in New York in the New York real estate community who have been invested in New York real estate for for decades, multi generational families, and they're leaving. And you have the people who just spoke up just two days ago and said, you know what, we see what's going on and this is clearly not the direction that we want to take it. So you know what, what, what I see is people are starting to open their eyes and say, you know, these laws that were passed that were ostensibly supposed to be in favor of the populace have only had a detrimental and negative effect and the opposite effect and we need to change directions and hopefully conversations like this will um, we'll, we'll, we'll sw- we'll, we'll tend to change the direction of the legislature and the laws that are being put in effect such that they'll ultimately help housing. You know, Bill asked a question before to which we all landed silent. Hey, why don't we just invest more in affordable housing and make it easier for developers to, to build housing? And none of us had the answer to what should be a rather simple question. And I don't know you know, I, and I and i and I sat here um silent because I couldn't think of the answer to a really rather simple question of, well, why aren't we just building more housing
2: oh, oh, actually, I had a very long explanation of that, uh but I just didn't know where to begin, so that's why I had the long pause and and I just tell you, for background purposes, I finished writing a book on. Property rights and the housing crisis. And so uh, there are a lot of reasons, at least here in California, why we don't build adequate housing. Uh, one of them is zoning is so ridiculous, permitting is so ridiculous, conditions that are imposed on building homes everything from new solar roofs to $100,000 in impact fees per unit that you have to build. Uh, the neighbors are able to stop any project in suit and lawsuits for years and years. It's nearly impossible to build any kind of housing, market rate or otherwise. And then you talk about affordable housing. Well, you can't build housing that's affordable in California because it costs so darn much with all these things combined. Well, that's the answer I was about to launch into. But I think, how do I... where do i begin on that
1: one well you have the same issue here in new york right especially with then the cost of development and the cost of building is just so high in the price of acquisitions and everything else and so what the city tried to do to some extent is provide these tax abatements where the taxes on the properties would be abated to some extent and when the and, and here even in new york state they want to get rid of those tax abatements but yet impose affordable housing and uh, info- impose affordable housing regulations. So again, the landlord has absolutely no incentive to build and there's no profit margin upon which to build. And so, you know, it, it again begs the question, why don't, why do, why don't the legislatures, legislators just let the market be? And, and instead of imposing these zoning restrictions um, and, and all these other regulations allow allow landlords to build and develop housing but I guess it doesn't fit with their with their political leanings and and the the message they want to get out to their political base and it's just looking at things at a very short-term outlook and it ultimately uh, has you know substantial impact upon the ability of this city to provide housing to its citizens, unfortunately.
0: Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans. Please do not touch that skip button, because if you do, you'll miss the opportunity to be part of the movement, create a common-sense housing policy that works well for all the stakeholders. Check the show notes for a link to the three organizations in New York City that advocate for common-sense housing policy, CHIP, RSA and Spony, and they oppose good cause eviction on behalf of all property owners and tenants. On that page, look for instructions on how to add yourself to the email list of each of these organizations. I promise you that you will always be in the know when you read the updates you will receive from CHIP, RSA, and Spony. Also in the show notes will be a link to the good cause eviction bill blog on my website, and there you can learn more about the bill. There will also be a link to this episode that you can share with the people that really need to hear it, the Governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, and your New York State Senators and Assembly Members. And even though this is state legislation, if you live in New York City, the City Council Member of your City Council District should have this information as well, especially if they are on the Committee on Housing and Buildings. To see who represents you in New York City, Google who represents me, NYC, and follow the prompts for the results. And remember that you can contact the appropriate state lawmaker and city council member for the district in which you live, work, own a business, or own real estate. Imagine if all our elected officials received hundreds or even thousands or more requests to stop placing the burden of affordable housing on private property owners and tenants and instead were asked to craft common sense housing policy that transfers that burden to where it should be, government. If you don't speak up, if you don't get loud, if you don't engage and be part of the movement to create a common sense housing policy that works well for all the stakeholders, then nothing, nothing will change. Now back to the show. Enjoy this part of the episode on good cause eviction and then get to work, participate and get loud. So at this point, guys, I want to begin to wind down and Nativ, you're going to tell us about good cause eviction. state legislature goes into session in January, 2022. That's correct. And that's when this will be on the table again. And people seem to feel that it might pass.
1: There's a lot of concern about whether it will pass or whether certain variations of it will pass. We've seen bills pass in other counties of New York and so there is concern that there will be this statewide application of good cause eviction, especially in, on the heels of what just passed in St. Paul, Minnesota. And the, 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 well, what they're contemplating passing here is very similar to what was passed there, which was that um, there's going to be a cap on all rent increases of 3%. Uh, it's also might be tied to CPI of 1.5%. And this will apply to all market rate units. Right, so if, so if you have a cap at three percent on all market
0: rate units, and the cost of operating the unit increases ten percent, why is this a good thing? And of course, I'm being facetious.
1: Right. Well, of course, it's not. And what it will do again is it will cause landlords uh, to to not keep up the conditions in the in the the units. And more importantly, it will cause it will cause landlords to take flight from New York City and just and just have no interest in continuing to develop and buy units in the building and provide housing uh, because of the caps that exist in the state. And why should they why should they subject themselves to such caps and limitations when they can go any place outside? Of New York, especially in the Sun Belt states, and there's no regulations and no limitations on uh, the profits or the or the or the increases that could be had, and it'll have an extremely detrimental effect on housing in New York. But again, from a uh, you know when the legislature and the politicians look at this from on a short term basis to appease their base, sounds like a great talking point, Um, but ultimately it'll it'll cause massive destruction to the New York real estate base which will impact upon taxes which will impact ultimately on the budgets that we have for schooling, transportation, safety and everything else and our way of life which we've uh, which we've become used to in this once great city.
0: So as you said before, why don't we just let the market be the market and there would be organic affordable apartments as a result of that, because then there would be supply. And when there's more of a supply, that will temper rents across the board. And as I said before, right now, because of all the pandemic deals that are coming to a close and leases are renewing, property owners are now trying to recoup some of the losses from the pandemic period through unreasonably low rents even in market rate situations and you're seeing increases all you got to do is look at the newspaper 15 20 25 30% and more and they're probably doing it a little bit in anticipation of good cause eviction right because if i if if i raise somebody you know 5 or 10% now when i could raise them 30 or 40% now why would I wait if I'm only going to be able to raise them three percent after January or February or March of 2022?
1: Right. So I guess we're ending where we began, right? Which is something that Jim spoke about, which is the greatest way of destroying a housing market is through rent regulation. And I think the the words which, you know, were were, were pretty impactful was that, um, you know. If you compare the photograph of a city that's been bombed and a city that had rent regulations, you'll see the similarities between the two, which is quite an incredible statement, but um, sadly enough, rather true.
0: And And there is very much an existence of people that could benefit from good apartments at a lower cost based on the way rent stabilization used to be but won't be able to have that because of HSTPA of 2019. And there are market rate tenants right now that would be able to have more affordable market rate units, but can't because of the anticipation of more rent control in the state of New York.
1: A hundred percent.
3: A little anecdote here is I was on the phone with a client, was a relatively prominent New York City developer and manager just sold its last portfolio in New York City about a month ago. I was told that he is only investing in red states, that he is no longer investing in New York City. He's given up on New York City. He's been an investor, multi-generational investor, and he is now looking to only Texas, Florida, Sunbelt states to park billions, with a B, billions of dollars of equity in those states. And- whether or not he'll return, we're not sure, but he's he's sort of licking his finger and putting it to the wind and saying, New York City is not the direction in which I want my money to go.
0: And and in that case, if you can share the information, was it uh, other individual landlords that purchased these properties or was it large professional organizations?
3: So So the organizations that purchased these properties were backed by there are smaller organizations backed by larger institutional money
0: right and so what's going to happen there is that uh that large institutional backing is going to create an opportunity to ride all of this out however long it takes and then uh once uh once they can uh the tenants in those buildings are, are not going to benefit from this
1: they're not going to benefit from this at all you're 100% right we're looking at the evisceration of the mom and pop landlord they there is no way the mom and pop landlords who used to form the majority of landlords in this city can survive with the with the onslaught of regulations with the with the um, the with the increases in the regulations it's not possible to survive and therefore the only the only individuals or entities that can afford units or take the chance to purchase units in New York City are these large institutional developers who form no relationships with the tenant and again ultimately it's going to be the tenants who will suffer
3: that's not to say that institutional landlords will not benefit their tenants. It's more to say that the small New York City landlords that created the majority of New York City landlords, that generation or or, or that tranche of individuals no longer part of the equation. And you would think that the legislature would want to protect those people. Uh, Everybody wants to protect their citizenry from the, quote, sharks, uh, if you're a minnow. Uh, And these landlords are minnows. Uh, And, you know, uh, the... Unfortunately, I feel like the New York State Legislature and the New York City Council are throwing the baby out with the bathwater because they're not protecting uh, either the small landlords. And they're saying that because they don't want to protect the larger institutional landlords.
2: Isn't that the way with all kinds of regulations of everything from widgets to airplanes to cars? The big players are always the ones that survive the regulatory onslaught. And the mom-and-pop businesses are the ones that fall by the wayside. And so the progressives that talk about this kind of regulatory onslaught of being for a little guy are fooling themselves or they know better and counting on all kinds of campaign contributions from those people who can work the system the best. Uh, But certainly it does nothing for the tenant which is who we are supposed to be concerned about, whether you are a landlord trying to provide a home for your tenants to live in or whether you're a politician who is concerned about the habitability of the tenant's apartment. Uh, these are not the concerns that are being advanced by this draconian kind of rent control, the uh, amendments of 2019, or, or anything that you folks are adopting in New York or that's done in St. Paul or what we're doing in California.
0: Well, I think it's time to wrap it up, guys. We have covered an awful lot of information. And as I usually do, when our time together draws to a close, i like to have one more question for each of you before we go. If you woke up tomorrow and something in the world had changed, what do you wish it would be? Jim?
2: Other than my torn tendon and my knee being fixed,
0: other than that, Jim.
2: Uh, if, I woke, <laughs> if, I, if I woke up tomorrow and one thing it could change, it would be that the progressives would understand the economic and human consequences of what they wish for and what they're trying to accomplish. Because I think if they understood what they were really going to happen from their policies, they might just step back a little bit and say, hey, you know, there's another side to this. And that's the side of the people that we're supposed to help and the side of all those business people, whether they're landlords or small business operators, that also need to survive as well. And, and maybe we can have some of these less drastic command and control regulations.
3: Thank you, Jim. Craig? What I hope first and foremost is that politicians put their personal interests aside and think first and foremost
1: about the public interest. And that, Steve? Well, if I can change anything in the world, I would hope for peace and prosperity to all. But if we're going to uh, limit it to the topics we spoke about today, I would say that I would hope for the magnified uh, repeat of what happened two days ago, which is we see the replacement of socialist politicians and policies with policies that actually speak to the actual needs and aspirations of its citizens, of its citizenry. And we put in place politicians who understand the, the, the real life needs of the people of the city of New York to bring it back uh, to where it used to be. And instead of the downfall that I've literally witnessed with my own eyes for the past four years. Thanks, Nativ.
0: Jim, Craig, Nativ, that was marvelous, and I'm sure the Realty Speak listeners concur with me that they got a lot of great information today. If they want to get in touch with
1: any of you, please share how they can do that. Nativ? You can reach me at nwinyarski at kookamarino.com, or you can reach me at the firm's uh, phone number, 212-869-5030. Craig? Your listeners can reach me at
3: cgambardella at cookermarino.com. That's C-G-A-M-B-A-R-D-E-L-L-A at K-U-C-K-E-R-M-A-R-I-N-O.com. And Jim?
2: If your listeners go to our website, pacificlegal.org, they can learn all about our cases. They can hit on the staff link to see how to contact me directly at pacificlegal.org. And all of our property rights cases are described there. So I I recommend your uh, listeners go and look at the website. It's entertaining and it's uh, informative. And you can reach me that way or uh, just learn more about Pacific Legal Foundation.
0: And, Jim, I second that. I've been to your website, and it is very entertaining.
2: And we just revamped the website about two days ago. So it's a brand-new website, all kinds of graphics, and uh, much more in the way of video. So its uh, I think it's uh, getting to be highly entertaining to watch. It's certainly uh, worth a little bit of time when you're not texting or uh, doing YouTube as you're traveling down the highway.
0: And listeners, that'll be in the show notes so that if you're driving right now, you didn't have to write all that down. You just go to the show notes, and I'll have all the contact information that Nativ, Craig, and Jim just shared with us. Thank you, Nativ. Thank you, Nativ, for co-hosting today, and thank you, Craig and Jim, for joining as guests.
1: Thank you, Bill. It was a real pleasure to be here, and I hope we provided good information for the audience. Thank Thank
3: you, Bill. Thanks for having me.
1: It was a blast.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Bill. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, there
3: you
0: have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website and there is an opt-in option at the top of the page. Or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please, help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at billwidener.com. That's dot com. And remember... It's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.